five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Don't Let Go Canada Coalition. For 60 years, Canada has been a space leader. We help build the International Space Station and land astronauts on the moon. Back on Earth, we leverage our space capabilities every day to push boundaries in medicine, communications, and environmental monitoring. The clear vision and commitment of previous governments helped drive this forward, but now our country faces a decision point and we need to act. Please visit don'tletgocanada.ca and join the campaign to help us keep innovation, jobs, and our best and brightest in Canada. The universe needs more Canada. Don't let go, Canada. Today's SpaceQ podcast is a panel discussion from the recent Canadian Science Policy Conference. The panel, titled How Canada Can Create a Sustainable National Space Infrastructure, was organized by Michelle Mendez of the Space Advisory Board and features members of the Space Advisory Board. The panel was moderated by Dr. David Kendall, past chair of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. The panelists are Kate Howells, Global Community Outreach Manager and National Coordinator for Canada, the Planetary Society. Dr. Gordon Dzinski, NSERC, MDA, Canadian Space Agency Industrial Research Chair in Planetary Geology from Western University. Dr. Michael Play, President, Play Consulting. And Dr. Lucy Stoyak, Executive Director, Mosaic. And before we listen into the audio recording from the Canadian Space Policy Conference, I would like to thank the Canadian Space Policy Centre for providing us this audio recording. Listen in. Uh, could we start the panel, please? If you'd like to have conversations, please have them outside. We like to try, try and get on time here. We're five minutes late already. So uh, let's go uh, with this one. This is a, a panel entitled How Canada Can Create a Sustainable National Space Infrastructure. Uh, hopefully you're in the, right, in the right room for those of you who want to be here. Uh, great. So, hi again. My name is uh, David Kendall, and I have the distinct pleasure to, uh, to moderate this panel this morning, as I said, entitled How Canada Can Create a Sustainable National Space Infrastructure. I'm going to give you just a very brief background, and then we're going to go into the uh, four panelists. So, Basically, this uh, panel is dealing with uh, uh, the current lack of government-endorsed policy framework for space and a long-term space plan uh, with strong government commitment and support. And this has led to reduction in industrial and academic interest in this sector. And unfortunately, this is accelerating right now as other countries move forward with ambitious national space plans. Furthermore, the continuing inability to translate can Canadian-led innovation and scientific breakthroughs in space-related activities into economic development based in Canada, together with the loss of access to space activities of international partners by virtue of a lack of funding, has materially diminished our academic and industrial base 
that has been carefully and strategically built up during the period 1960 to, 19, to 2005. Now, this panel uh, is, we're very fortunate to have uh, four members of the Government of Canada's Space Advisory Board that reports directly to the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, uh, Minister Baines. And they will consider this issue through the following lens. So we will start with a brief overview of the global context relating to space activities, uh, covering the trends and opportunities for Canada. And this will be presented by Kate Howells, who has a background in space policy and educational activities and is the Global Community Outreach Manager and National Coordinator for, Ca for Canada of the Planetary Society. Kate will be followed by Dr. Mike Play, the retired uh, Chief Executive Officer of Comdev International, who is currently supporting uh, small and medium-sized enterprises and space companies through his management consulting company. And Mike will consider the situation in respect to Canadian industry, competitiveness, innovation, and economic development. Next, Dr. Gordon Nazinski <coughs> will look at, the at this topic as it relates to space science and academia. Now, Gordon is better known to everybody as Oz, and he holds an in NSERC Industrial Research Chair in planet Planetary Geology in the Departments of Earth Sciences and Physics and Astronomy at Western University in Ontario. And lastly, Dr. Marie-Lucy Stoyak, the Executive Director of Mosaic at HEC Haute Etudes Commerciales Montréal, and the Chairperson of the Space Advisory Board, will present some current policy considerations and options for the future. Lucy has an extensive background in space policy and law, as well as space educational programs, mainly through the International Space University. And uh, enfin, nous serions uh, heureux de répondre à vos questions en français à la fin de cette séance, uh, si, uh, si vous avez des questions en français. Okay, without further ado, I will ask Kate to, uh, to uh, you can speak from there, uh, to talk about uh, the uh, global context. Thank you, Kate. Great. Thank you, David. So first of all, I want to say that it's nice to be speaking to fresh faces. Um, I think all of us are quite used to talking about the situation with Canadian space policy to a room full of people who already understand what we're talking about and are nodding along because they've heard it all before. So it's great to be able to talk to a new group and hopefully you guys can take this information and spread it. Um, I've been tasked with giving an overview of the global context of space policy, which is an enormous topic. So rather than going into detail country by country and giving a, you know, a full in-depth overview, I'm going to talk about some overall patterns that we're seeing um, around the world with space policy. So when you're comparing Canada's space program to other countries, there are a few different groups that it makes sense to compare to. The first, which is really just a country on its own, is the United States. It's the leader in space. It has by far the hugest space budget. Um, it has a long history in space, and they um, tend to do the most in science, exploration, technology development, um, that kind of thing. The next group that I would lump together are sort of the traditional spacefaring nations. So this is countries like Russia, um, the European Space Agency uh, member states, um, Japan, China, uh, and others. And then um, there's sort of this new group of emerging spacefaring nations. And so this is countries like the United Arab Emirates that have a new space program. The Australian Space Agency is brand new, although they have had some activity in space in the past. 
Um, Luxembourg has been in the news in the recent years for um, wanting to take on the space mining industry. Um, and so these are countries that are kind of coming up in the world of space. But uh, regardless which group you are comparing Canada to, you are seeing that they are growing their space programs more than we are. So <clears throat> I want to pick apart sort of what it means to say that a country is growing its space program. So. I think it's important, first of all, to acknowledge that a space program is multifaceted. It's not just what most people might think of when they think of a space program, which is astronauts and uh, Mars rovers. I mean, that sort of science and exploration component is part of it, but there's also um, the space infrastructure that every country relies on, whether it's communications or um, Earth observation for monitoring um, uh, borders and that kind of thing. I mean, that's really important in Canada. There's um, the space industry. So if we're building rockets and other countries are paying to use our rockets, that's part of our space program. Um, and there, I mean, all, all of these different facets of the space program, whether it's for science, exploration, defense, or the economy, these all have different drivers, different incentives, different mechanisms, and different governing bodies a lot of the time. So space is this sort of huge field. Um, when we say that space programs are growing, uh, this also has a few different facets to it. So the most obvious is increased budgets, and we see this um, across the board a lot, across a lot of these other spacefaring nations. We are seeing more money being put into space. And again, this can even be broken down a little bit into money that is being put into programs like science or exploration, that there isn't necessarily a direct return on investment in a sort of immediate sense, or there are um, increased budgets for things like um, rocketry, where you might actually be able to um, sell services to other countries or to companies to get some money back right away. But again, across the board, we're seeing more money being put into space. Um, and another big part of the way in which other countries are growing their space programs is through um, policy. So um, adjusting their policy frameworks and um, particularly regulatory policy to allow a space industry and a space economy to grow. So we've seen this really recently in the U.S. Uh, they passed a bill to, um, or I think it was maybe a, presidential directive, but in any case, um, they're relaxing the regulatory framework around launch and reentry. So who can launch? What do you have? What kind of uh, hoops do you have to jump through to be able to launch something? They're making this more flexible to accommodate this rapidly growing and very profitable launch industry. So what we're really seeing, I mean, just to sort of reiterate, is with, no matter what aspect of space uh, programs you're looking at, and no matter what type of growth you're looking at, we're seeing other countries recognize that it's worthwhile to grow a space program. Um, and this isn't just in the sort of more pragmatic aspects of space like Earth observation or defense capabilities or um, profitable uh, endeavors. It's also in the more aspirational aspects of space, so science and exploration. We're seeing a lot of other countries pumping more into this, really recognizing that there is value, not only economically, but societally. So um, I won't say much more than that. I, my colleagues have a lot to say about where Canada stands. Um, it's the last thing that I will say is that I think oftentimes when comparing countries' space activities, there is this sense of competition that we should be doing as much as they are doing because we want to be you know, in the race, we want to be um, you know, on the same level uh, in terms of 
you know, showing off our capabilities. But I, th I think it's important not to think of it in these terms. It's not a race. It's looking at what other countries are doing and seeing that they're recognizing a value that is going to come back to their own people. And I think that Canada needs to recognize that same value regardless of what our neighbors are doing. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Kate. And I will uh, immediately pass to Mike. Uh, can everybody hear me all right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm tackling the, the issue of what's the situation with respect to Canadian industry competitiveness, innovation, and economic development. I'm going to actually start with why is space strategic for Canada and how has that shaped industry? Um, as Kate alluded to, a lot of nations have, have figured out space is strategic in some way. But think about it. Canada's got the second largest landmass. It's got the most extensive coastline in the world, and it, uh, it has three different ocean approaches to it. There is no other way to monitor you know, our borders, our sovereignty, uh, to connect remote communities, to, to monitor our um, natural resources in the face of climate change, except through the use of space resources, our space assets. Um, so it, it's a very natural fit for Canada, probably more so than any other nation in the world, and therefore that is what drove Canada to um, uh, to start looking at a space as an investment. So if you actually go back to 1986, Canada created the first long-term space plan. It was called LTSP-1. And then in 1994, that was replaced by Long-Term Space Plan 2, or LTSP-2. And these actually laid the blueprint for what type of, you know, what type of capacity Canada needed in order to be able to address space to, to, to realize this strategic uh, issue for Canada. Um, and if, you, if the result of that was that there was some good, timely, and I'm going to say relatively modest investments made at those times, and it resulted in the fact that we've got an industrial capacity now with world-leading niche space products and technology in RF, optics, robotics, and in space missions. I mean, we're, we're all familiar with the, you know, some of the imagery from Canadarm, but few people, few people realize that we're, we're basically involved in a lot of different aspects of, of, uh, of the space world. And the Canadian industry contributes subsystems, instruments, satellites, constellations of satellites, for communications, earth observation, remote sensing, space science and exploration. And I can give you lots of examples of Canadian First, which pushed Canadian industry to be at the forefront of these things. So what has that actually meant to the country? What's the socioeconomic impact of that type of investment? In um, 2015, CSA had a study done by Euroconsult to, to look at the socioeconomic impact. And a few things came out. There's 25,000 jobs tied to the sector, 10,000 direct ones. 53% of those jobs are HQP, probably the highest of any industry sector in this country. The GDP per worker is $160,000. That is twice the national average of GDP per worker. The intensity of business-funded R&D activities are six times higher than the broader manufacturing industry. And actually, more recent data shows that to be closer to nine times, which is huge. So when you look at this, you've got to say, boy, this is the poster child for you know, the government's uh, innovation agenda. It's, it would be a great, great positive story to build on. But it's really important to recognize that when I said there was LTSP, in 1994. There has not been another long-term space plan since. And when David talked about 2005, that's really when 
that LTSP2 ran out. So most industrial players actually rely on the government market and the commercial market. They can't scale up unless they both exist. Um, and uh, with a dwindling government commitment in Canada, our domestic industry has become heavily reliant on our access to the commercial market. Uh, we are world leaders in commercializing space for communications and remote sensing. Uh, virtually, uh, we supply every major satellite manufacturer out there with equipment for those things. So that all sounds pretty cool. But the world's changing, and the world's changing very dramatically and very quickly. There's something called new space happening, and we've all seen SpaceX, Blue Origin, and, and Virgin Galactic showing how the, the cost to, to orbit has been reduced dramatically. Electronics have shrunk to the point where you can make really small packages and very powerful instruments and things that go into space for, for much smaller than what we used to. Some of the big satellites were the size of a, uh, you know, a school bus, and now we're talking about the size of a, a, a loaf of bread. Um, so uh, these have all been driven by, you know, things like the digital economy, the you know, Internet of Things, big data, and 5G, where space and satellite assets in particular have a significant role to play. So biggest quiz of satellites that we've built in the past are now being replaced by smaller satellites, often in large numbers, and many service-oriented entrepreneurs are putting up their own space assets and selling the data and information from that to others. So the, it, actually, government is getting less involved in that or has the option of being less involved in that. So Kate alluded to the fact that there's a growing presence in the global space market. Um, there are now over 60 nations with space plans. They've recognized the strategic nature of, of space for their economic and scientific future. And they're taking the, the advantage of this ability to address traditional space services themselves using this new space or small set revolution. So significant funding has been addressed in space, and I'll talk about this in a minute, except in Canada, where we, back in 1992, we were the eighth-ranked nation in terms of percentage of GDP spending in space. Currently, we are 18th, so we've dropped dramatically. If you actually look at how much we spend as a percentage of GDP, it's less than half the average of OECD nations. So we're, we're sort of, we've gone from a situation where we were a major leader to somebody who's, it's, it's not necessarily considered so strategic anymore. Government spending, and particularly in civil space, is actually projected to decline over the next number of years, only exacerbating that situation. So where does this put Canada's space industry? So we are seeing a decline in the traditional geo-large satellite marketplace. You know, typically companies like the one I used to run uh, would rely on 20 to 25 satellites a year being ordered. In the last two years, we've seen less than 10 ordered each year. So there's been a dramatic shift in the market as they move to these small sats. With the lack of a space vision or plan for the nation, really, over, since uh, you know the 1994 LTSP, um, there there is very little in the pipeline from a government perspective for space. Certainly, other countries, as we talked about, um, offer a better environment for space investments, particularly given that missions are usually reserved for domestic players. Uh, concerns over companies being able to scale up um, is very difficult to address unless there is a government space program coupled with access to the commercial space market. So if I look from 2010 to 2015, global space revenues increased by 18%. This is globally. And they're actually projected to increase to the, the, the multi-trillion dollar level over the next couple of decades. 
Um, Canada's space revenue in that same time frame from 2010 to 2015 has been flat, reflecting the lack of investment by Canada into there. So with the decline in this geo market that I mentioned, these large geo satellites, and the coming to the end of things like the Radarsat Constellation and James Webb Space Telescope and everything, there's actually precious few things in the pipeline for industry to be looking for. So actually, I'm projecting a significant drop in employment in Canada over the next two years. The signs are really all there and some, unless some real action is taken. Um, you know, despite some really strong domestic capabilities that we have as a country, companies are actually looking to other nations to invest in for growth. So start to see the capital, the HQP, and the R&D leaving this country and ultimately moving to, uh, to other countries to contend with some of the challenges that I mentioned. So this is a policy conference. So what do we do in that context? Let's give Canadian companies something to work with. A real national space plan that provides comfort that there are real missions in the pipeline and there's support to grow within a government space program. There's something called the Emerson Report that was done in 2012. The Aerospace Industries Association of Canada did a white paper on space innovation 2015, and the Space Advisory Board itself did a report last year, all recommending the same thing. Think of space as strategic and invest in, it, invest in a plan or a vision so that uh, it can establish the economic way ahead for, for the space industry and for the space community in Canada. This is not a new issue, um, but it's been ignored. The time to act is now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, so you've heard about the, uh, the competitiveness and the uh, innovation in the, in, within the industry, and uh, this is, is a science policy conference, and uh, Oz will now talk about the impact that, uh, of this issue on the science community uh, in Canada. Thank you, Oz. Thanks, David. Um, all right, yes, yeah, so as a scientist and a professor at Western University, you know, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, as Mike's already said, you know, Canada has a long and proud history in space. Um, Mike's covered kind of the industrial side of things. And I think like he, you know, I could sit here for the next, well, we don't have 45 minutes left, but I could talk about all the accomplishments in space science in Canada. But that's not really why we're here. Um, you know, we've heard that space is an innovation driver for engineering. You know, if you want to give an engineer a challenge, you have to build something that will last for more than you know, a few days in space or on the surface of another planet. And you know, we can do that at uh, the undergraduate and graduate level in universities, and it really does drive innovation that feeds into industry. Uh, I would say the same to a certain degree uh, on the science side of things, too. You know, it's a little bit more difficult to imagine, um, but you know, when we're talking about space science, um, we really have to think outside the box, you know, just not a little bit, but all the time. We're thinking about big questions. You know, if you think about some of the biggest scientific names of all time, from Copernicus and Galileo to Hawking, um, you know, they were thinking about really big questions. Uh, you know, our place in the universe, the origin of life, and those are kind of the questions that drive space science and uh, drive a lot of what we do. And, you know, why is space science, so, or how is space science different to, you know, science in general? Well. <clears throat> You know, universities, and I think even on the previous panel this morning, if you're in the room, we talk universities and governments throw around the world interdisciplinarity or interdisciplinary research all the time. But, you know, space is really where that is happening, I would argue. If you take the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration at Western, this is a cross-campus uh, organization. We have 50 faculty members from nine of Western's 11 faculties. 
And, you know, I'm working on the other two, one of which is music, which may, may not be possible, um, but actually I think it will be. Um, but, you know, at the intersection of various different aspects of science, whether it's astronomy and computer science, geology and mechatronics, you know, people have said this uh, before me. We had Ted here, who I know has spoken at this conference at Western a couple of weeks ago. You know, and he said, you know, in the future where all these great advancements are going to happen is at the intersection of science. And that is the need for, you know, that is driving interdisciplinarity. And by its very nature, we have to be interdisciplinary as space scientists. And so, you know, it's exactly this culture of interdisciplinarity that attracts, attracts the best and the brightest to space science, to our universities, to our industries, and to our, our space agencies. Um, but as David and as Mike have said already, you know, we're at a crossroads. Um, we have been without a long-term space plan, and it's definitely affecting industry, as Mike has clearly laid out. And that really does percolate directly and indirectly down to universities, too. Um, and the crux is that, you know, we've, you've heard a lot at this conference already um, about, you know, the, the great job I think the government's done in terms of supporting fundamental science. But space science, again, is, you know, big science with a capital B, and it's really driven by missions. You know, big missions to big destinations to answer big questions. And, you know, if you haven't heard already, in 23 days now, um, we will have a Canadian instrument on the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft uh, meeting asteroid Bennu. So this is exciting. You know, if you haven't heard of it, just Google OSIRIS-REx after this, and you know we have uh, the instrument that will be mapping the surface of an asteroid, you know, many thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away. But the problem is, space missions take a decade or even two decades to plan. And we have basically passed as a nation on all the recent previous space mission opportunities. So, you know, if you take Mars, Mars is a big interest to the Canadian uh, space science community. Since 2008, we've had a Canadian instrument and Canadian scientists on all, Mars, all missions going to Mars. The next two missions being launched by ESA and NASA in 2020 will not have Canadian instruments on board. Um, and that, you know, so we're not going to feel the pain as a scientific community uh, until, you know, a decade from now, because there is such a, such a long time to ramp up these missions, to plan them, and then to eventually execute them. Uh, and we've also lost out on various competed missions. You know, we had essentially a 100% record of having Canadian contributions on NASA Discovery and New Frontiers missions. But that ended a few years ago, and we've again missed those last couple of opportunities. So a decade from now, when those missions launch, you know, we're not going to have a Canadian contribution, and so that's drastically going to affect the Canadian community. And I was asked to talk about this, you know, because of this, we do have a significant brain drain uh, of Canadian students uh, leaving the country. And, you know, hands down, it's definitely the worst part of being a professor at a university when I see, you know, my best and brightest students leaving uh, to other nations. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll talk about the, these particular three students later, um, but I've had the pleasure of having three uh, Vanier Canada graduate scholars, all women, and two of them have graduated and have left immediately for the U.S., and Christy, who's, uh, you know, about to graduate, uh, will be doing so the same. And, you know, the Vanier Scholar Program, I looked it up, you know, was set up not just to attract but to retain, um, you know, the best and the brightest in Canada. Well, we're attracting them, um, but we're definitely not retaining them in the space science sector. Um, 
So, you know, Tanya and Haley um, got immediate postdoc opportunities in the U.S. at Arizona State University, that's at the epicenter of space science research, and at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. You know, so for me, when I write my insert discovery grant, my students are doing awesome, and that's fantastic. But you know, I think we're failing as a nation because they're not finding those opportunities here in Canada. And Christie's about a year away from graduation, and you know, there's, there's no opportunity for her here. So she's already got offers from PI in France, and uh, again at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. And so, you know, we could go on. Um, yesterday, I wasn't at this conference. I was actually at the Science Teachers Association of Ontario conference and, um, you know, presenting some of the space outreach work that we do at Western, um, some new programs that we're doing. And, you know, part of me and part of I know a lot of academics right now is why are we doing <clears throat> that? You know, space is fantastic for attracting and getting kids interested in all STEM disciplines. Um, but then, you know, on Twitter, and I, uh, if you're on Twitter right now, uh, look up one robot, with a, so it's one as in W-O-N. Um, there was a bit of a discussion going on about, you know, the future of Canadian space. And this is a 12 and a 9-year-old from Toronto. They've won NASA hackathons and space apps and things. And they point blank called me out and, you know, and a comment I made and said, you know, in this case, what would your advice be for the younger Canadians interested in the space sector? Um, you know, who would like to contribute their time and passion to it. So that's coming from a 9- and a 12-year-old who wanted to work in the Canadian space sector. And I didn't have a good answer. You know, I basically said, don't lose hope. Uh, you know, stick with it. You're hopefully young enough that, you know, in a few years' time, we will have another long-term space plan. Um, but right now, we are in quite a dire situation. And uh, I think with that, I'll uh, pass on to Lucy, who's going to kind of wrap things up and, uh, you know, touch on all these topics again. Thanks, uh, Oz. I wanted to uh, thank everyone for being here and just to highlight the first statement that Kate made when this panel started, how important it is to speak to people who are not in the space field, because I think that's one of the big challenges of Canada and space. So many success stories, and yet not only the scientific community outside of the space community, but I would say the general average Canadian is unaware of the magnificent accomplishments of Canada in the space sector. So I'll come back to that, but that's a really, um, I think, important point. So as mentioned by, uh, notably by Mike, um, there have been a series of uh, reports that have been made recently in the past six, seven years, the Emerson uh, Aerospace Report, the AIAC, and more recently, uh, the Space Advisory Board that was revitalized in 2017, uh, reports to Minister Baines uh, from the uh, Innovation Science and Economic Development uh, uh, ministry. Um, we carried out a series of round uh, tables last year and uh, submitted a report that was made public in August about what we heard. Uh, there were really six uh, major themes that uh, were condensed in two recommendations. Um, the six themes uh, really were space as a national strategic asset, uh, the fact that we were losing capacity, uh, the fact that we would need to update our policies and regulations to be more in line with uh, the new developments in the new space uh, sort of commercial sector, and I'll get back to that in a little bit. Outreach and continuity, uh, we're losing talent. Uh, we, uh, the Canadian Space Agency's budget has actually gone down over the past several years. Back in 2011 or 2012, uh, the agency's budget for uh, science programs was cut, and the outreach and education uh, programs were also cut, and that has significantly impacted um, the space sector. And the urgency, the urgency for Canada to set out 
a, a national plan. All major spacefaring nations have a national strategy. Emerging countries are developing, opening up space agencies. Why? To get orchestrated. The plan is necessary to be able to focus efforts by government, by industry, by science, by academia, and by civil society to know what the long-term plan is so that you can align your strengths, you can retain your capital, your human capital. You can say, this, these are the missions. This is where Canada will be investing. This is, as Mike mentioned, we have a um, fantastic set of niche technologies like robotics, earth observation that we're world-renowned for. Those investments were made years ago and have uh, paid off uh, in, in uh, uh, buckets worth of monies in terms of the public investment that was made for that. And so there's an urgent need for that same kind of uh, vision. Uh, the report and what we heard during the roundtables highlighted also the need to have uh, a balance of portfolios. And so to invest in uh, space science and exploration, earth observation, to uh, and have that over a phased period of time so that there was always something in the pipeline, be it developing technology, uh, giving flight uh, a heritage and chances to fly instrumentation, and especially also to allow Canada internationally to mark uh, its ground and say, this is where we're investing. We want to continue to be known as a reliable partner. And we hear from our, our international colleagues uh, in large-scale collaboration missions that that brand, the Canadian brand of Canada being a very reliable partner, has been tarnished a little bit simply because we have been invited to participate in exciting missions, but because the funding wasn't there and because of the time that it took to be able to get back to some of these invitations, the time lapsed and we, we, we missed out on certain uh, opportunities. I think another important point to uh, make is in terms of, well, what are, Kate alluded to the fact that uh, other countries are very aggressively passing legislation. Well, what, what are they including? What kind of things are they doing to uh, stimulate uh, maybe space science or, or STEM research? Uh, in the case of space science, a lot of agencies are putting specific percentages of the overall space agency's budget geared specifically for space science. This is something uh, that uh, could be restored perhaps at the Canadian Space Agency level. In terms of new space, there's a lot of exciting activities that may seem far out right now. Space tourism, uh, you know, the, the fact that we now have reusable commercial launchers is going to push, uh, I think, that industry and accelerate its development. Uh, there are companies and countries that are interested in lunar mining, and I think this uh, really hit a chord. We held one of our roundtables in Toronto, and there was someone from one of the big Canadian mining companies who couldn't understand why a country like Luxembourg, uh, which has a huge uh, interest in satellite communications, but very little... Um, uh, in-house knowledge about mining had set up a, a national act for resource uh, exploitation. And, and the challenge for Canada is we have knowledge in the, in the resource industry. We see that technology is going towards asteroid mining. There's a huge need for cross-sector uh, dialogue, and Canada could certainly contribute to that. And the example of Luxembourg is, is, is important to understand. What they are doing is they are setting up an ecosystem that has sort of stable... Um, uh, 
not rules, but a stable environment. So they are basically announcing to the outside world, we uh, have funding available for companies, foreign companies that come and establish themselves here. We are developing an ecosystem, and this is attracting foreign industry. There are a lot of U.S.-based companies that are now setting up shop to continue along the lines of developing uh, exploitation of asteroids. And so, again, they are going there uh, because right now there's, quite frankly, nothing that is being offered uh, to develop this kind of stable environment and to attract, to signal not just to domestic uh, industry and to the science and universities here, but to the outside world that, yes, we are very much still involved and we are um, a key player. I think also there was a recent, uh, important to highlight, there was a recent Ipsos uh, read survey that was made and the results were made public at the end of September, beginning of October. And one of the things that came out from that is that Canadians, yes, of course, know about Canadarm. They're very proud of the astronauts, but very uh, little aware of other achievements. But when they're told about them, they get very excited. And when they're asked, well, over the past, let's say, 10 to 15, 20 years, Canada has invested this much, and these are the returns. They're very excited. In fact, if you read some of the testimonies, they'll say, wow, that's a, quite a good deal for the, for the original investment. So there's a clear need for public awareness and outreach. And also, they were very excited about new space. They were saying that, well, you know, Canada has has been and is a, uh, a, an economy that has been based on resources. And new space is something that is exciting for the younger generation, and there's a huge promise. Uh, again, Mike mentioned data. We're not going to stop having data. We are going to have more and more data, whether it comes from space sensors uh, and the importance of mixing data uh, with terrestrial data, uh, aerial data, and then applying artificial intelligence to that. We don't even know what kind of space applications and new applications that's going to generate. So again, a great importance, and others are, are setting the ground and enabling companies to set up, to do research, uh, to cross, uh, do research with cross sectors, and, and just push the boundary a little bit further, and that right now is not uh, existing here. Another thing that's important to highlight is that in all uh, major uh, spacefaring countries, there are clear uh, domestic policies and regulations that favor buying domestically made uh, technology and services. Uh, right now in Canada, that is not uh, the case, and so this too, in the U.S., for example, to foster the commercial sector, the government clearly says, we will buy services from the commercial space sector. The government is not to put barriers and is not to uh, procure and operate systems that are already existing in the commercial sector and probably being done more efficiently. And this is very strategic because it frees up money from the government coffers to invest perhaps in technology that has more of a national security or public good uh, aspect. Uh, so right now there's a lot of ground uh, that Canada needs to cover to catch up to this kind of, uh, of uh, investment. And I think also just the way other countries are structuring themselves. Uh, in the U.S. Uh, last week, uh, Commerce Secretary Ross submitted to Congress a proposal to establish a new Bureau for Space Commerce that's going to be headed by an Assistant Secretary for Space Commerce. So before there used to be a directorate, it wasn't a separate bureau, but now it's being elevated because of the seriousness and the, the um, uh, substantial investments both in terms of research for the academics but for the private uh, uh, sector as well. 
I spoke before to uh, the point that uh, the CSA's outreach budget was uh, was cut. Other uh, countries, uh, U.S., the European Union, uh, each time a contract is uh, given out in the contract, there is a clause which stipulates that the company or whoever obtains uh, the funding money must give back a certain percentage to outreach and education activities. Again, this is something I think that uh, lesson learned or to be at least recognized here uh, in Canada. And maybe... Uh, a couple of last points. Space, uh, a lot of the major problems that face humanity, whether you think of uh, climate change, uh, supply uh, to water, um, are global. And space, if not, if it doesn't provide the solution, is really part of the solution. And so there's a very big facet of space that is global and international. And one thing that is, and, and this allows Canadian companies to also export their technology uh, and to create new markets. But from, um, I would say, a legal and regulatory perspective, there's also uh, sort of standards and uh, regulations and guidelines that are being developed uh, primarily through something that's called COPUIS, which is at the United Nations. And our chair, uh, David Kendall, is the outgoing chair of the United Nations uh, COPUIS um, um, uh, body. And what's important to note there is that because space is global because increasingly you have more and more actors that are launching more and more uh, satellites that are precluding themselves of the applications that you can get from space technologies. There's a need to coordinate these activities because it's in everyone's interest to ensure that if you launch something that your satellite will be secure. And so the, the, the rules of the road at the international level, Canada from its diplomatic um, expertise and leadership really has to to step up at that level uh, as well. Otherwise, the rules will be written by others and we will be in a position uh, of catching up. So it's really a question, does Canada want to continue to be a spacefaring nation? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lucy, and thank you to the panel. We have about five minutes left. Um, I just want to give a quick sum up here. So you've heard some of the issues that we're dealing with. Uh, in Canada with respect to the space program. Um, there's quite a lot of activity going on that uh, I hope you've realized to lobby the government and to inform the government of the, uh, the importance of this sector uh, for Canada. Uh, one of the things that most people don't realize is that each of us use space somewhere in our lives around 300 times a day. Uh, and do we want this very important infrastructure sector to uh, basically be uh, provided to us by uh, almost entirely by uh, our partners, or do we really want to become, uh, maintain, not even become, maintain a player, an important player in, in this sector? We have the history for it. Uh, the past while, the past decade has been rather, let's say, um, less than uh, inspiring for the sector. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a lot of work being done in order to uh, inform the government and to hope the government uh, comes through with uh, uh, a policy, a plan, a strategy, and, and some, some budget. You may have seen on the sides of buses here in, 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 um, in Ottawa the uh, Don't Let Go Canada campaign, which is uh, uh, part of the lobbying process. Um, and we have this uh, extremely... Um, I would say, in, in, uh, knowledgeable and, uh, and, and high-level space advisory board. All the members are part of the space advisory board, uh, with Lucy Stoyak being the chair, uh, advising directly to the minister 
uh, about these issues. So the minister is hearing the stories and, and the issues that, we're, that we've just uh, been talking about. Um, I think that we have uh, about a couple of minutes for questions right at the end here. Uh, if there are any urgent questions, I would, uh, I would appreciate them. Um, I have uh, one at the back there, please. starting to wonder if maybe we've got the wrong end of the stick almost completely. Um, first of all, I've, I've been kind of involved in the industry. I, Brad Wallace, I work at Defence R&D Canada. I've been involved in the, several space missions. And I've been listening to basically the same thing for the last 15 years. That we don't have any vision, that we're not giving enough money, blah, 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 blah. And nothing has changed. So what I'm wondering here is, and I'm going to be a bit provocative here, is should we get rid of this Canadian Space Agency? Listen to me here. The idea is that the Canadian Space Agency is a belly button. It is the one point for the, the, the government's civil space. That means it's the one place which either if there is, say, tone deafness to government direction, or if there is, um, you know, just maybe, I know I'm not saying it is, but if there was incompetence at the top or something, the government can ignore that belly button and the entire sector suffers. However, let's imagine a world without the CSA or at least in a world where other government departments had the opportunity to spend money on space. NRC, for example, maybe could have jumped on to those, uh, to those Mars missions, building infrastructure for Canadian scientists to, to come into. CSA didn't pay any attention. Maybe, uh, maybe NRC could. Brad, uh, I'm going to stop you because we, we are running in short yeah, time. My apologies. So. so my idea here is, do we need to totally revamp the, the way government approaches space as and perhaps up to and including getting rid of CSA? Okay, I'll uh, ask I'll, Kate quickly. Yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting idea. I don't think that eliminating the CSA is the final answer. I do personally believe that we, part of the problem that we run into as a space sector is that the CSA is buried within ICED. If we were to have, um, say, a Ministry of Space, which is something that the UK has, for example, I think that having space be treated from a more sort of top level where we can take, you know, the CSA and the various different agencies or, um, you know, parts of government that have an interest in space, which are, you know, many, and had that run from a sort of higher level where that voice could be heard, I think that that could make a good difference. I think it is easy to ignore the belly button of the CSA, as you say, but I don't think that eliminating it is the answer. Okay, I'm going to just ask the two people at the mics to just say their statements or ask their questions, and, and we probably won't have time to answer them, but I, I'd like to hear both your comments, please. please. Uh, Sarah Gallagher, I'm the science advisor for the Canadian Space Agency, and I just want to push back against that statement. <laughs> um, so I'm an outsider, and I will be very brief, but I'm an outsider who has just come into the CSA um, within the past five weeks, and I've had an opportunity to really look under the hood. And I would like to say that I've been so impressed by the expertise and the passion of the people who are working there, and that does not exist anywhere else in the government or anywhere else in the sector. And I think it, it, it 
um, undermines and, and doesn't, I mean, that may not be something that a lot, a lot of people are aware of, but I can say as an outsider, I was incredibly, incredibly impressed. And so I think we should acknowledge that there are people there who have expertise that does not exist elsewhere in the country, and also they have a tremendous passion. Um, so that's my statement. Thank you. And just uh, comment there, please. Oh, um, hi. My name is Sam. Um, so I'm representing um, over 100 students at the University of Toronto Aerospace team. Um, who are you know, students and innovators, and we're really looking to get involved more on the space policy side of things. I'm just wondering how should our generation of students and young entrepreneurs and young engineers get involved with space policy and uh, space technology industry? Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to actually, because we have really run out of time yeah, no, here, understand. I'm going to ask uh, you to meet with the panel yeah. afterwards. That and, is the uh, answer, is talk to us. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to thank the panel very much. Uh, sorry we had to be so, so rushed. Uh, next year we'll, uh, we'll try and get a, a, a larger slot for this, uh, <laughs> this panel, a uh, longer slot, because I think there's a lot we can talk about, uh, and hopefully we'll, by next year we'll have some good news. So let's, uh, let's just find out. So thank you very much to the panel. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space Q. if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app